Hey everybody, and welcome to Well Said, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's podcast where we talk with students, faculty, and staff about what's going on on campus and around the world. And today we're talking about UNC Project Malawi and the upcoming winter commencement with commencement speaker and UNC Project Malawi's Cancer Program Director, Satish Gopal. At Carolina, we have this tradition of inviting a faculty member to speak at winter commencement. But unlike most winter commencement speakers of the past, you're not in Chapel Hill. You're some 8,000 miles away in Malawi. So let's start out today by talking about UNC Project Malawi. What is this project and what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, so um, UNC Project Malawi is a uh, you know, almost 30-year collaboration between UNC and the Ministry of Health and the College of Medicine in Malawi, which is a very beautiful country, but objectively one of the poorest countries in the world. So we have faculty members initially in infectious disease who I think became interested in, you know, how they could sort of study and help address the HIV epidemic back in the early 1990s. And that's really how the program started. And since then, it's grown, you know, kind of remarkably into what it is today. You're a two-time Carolina graduate. So how did you find yourself in Malawi working with this project? Yeah, so I, I always had a global health interest. And, you know, after I finished medical school, I then went and did residency in Michigan. And then my wife and I both had an interest in, um, you know, essentially traveling and traveling and living abroad and seeing what that experience was like and whether that was something that we wanted to do for the rest of our lives. So after finishing residency, we moved to Tanzania, where I lived for two years from 2007 to 2009 with my wife and my older daughter, who was six months old at the time that we moved and two and a half when we moved back to the U.S. And that was really just to try out what that was like. And I did mostly clinical and programmatic HIV related work. And, you know, we liked the experience very much. It was a setting that we felt very comfortable in. The work was incredibly rewarding. While we were living in Tanzania, I was really struck by how much cancer there was and, you know, how little evidence or, you know, I just thought there were not very many people, smart people thinking about cancer in a big way. And, And for some reason that the problem of, you know, how to, you know, address this very kind of complex set of diseases that require very high intensity treatment often in the U.S., you know, how to do that in an environment like Tanzania or Malawi was a was an intellectual problem that I found really interesting. And I wanted, decided I wanted to do some more training and kind of find out what the best place to do that was, given my career goals and you know, spoke to a number of people at a number of universities and UNC was very much on board right from the beginning. And, and you know, at that time, I knew that the, the main one of the main kind of UNC programs abroad was in Malawi. So from Tanzania, we moved, we essentially moved from Tanzania to Malawi by the way of Chapel Hill, where we stopped for a few years to do some additional training. But when we came back, the plan was always to sort of finish our training in Chapel Hill and then move back to Malawi. What is your focus and your role with UNC Project Malawi? So I direct the cancer program. Um, So again, I think UNC Project Malawi is, uh, I think there are a lot of these types of global health, academic global health programs that are, that have a very narrow focus on a specific disease or a specific area. UNC Project really, in many ways, reflects the School of Medicine or the Medical Center in Chapel Hill and that it's, it's, you know, it, all of the departments and divisions are engaged. There's tremendous breadth in our programming, including obviously a lot of HIV and infectious disease related work, which was really the foundation for everything else. But, you know, more recently, 
what has happened in all of these countries is there's been epidemiologic shifts in the burden of disease away from communicable diseases towards non-communicable diseases. And I think UNC Project has really engaged departments and people and divisions and centers across the university to really respond to that changing disease burden. So we have very active programs in women's health and surgery and family planning, um, you know, but certainly now cancer is a big growth area for us. I would say, you know, perhaps after infectious diseases, you know, maybe cancer is, is kind of the, I think is going to be the next big thing in global health. And that's the part of our sort of portfolio that I direct. So, you know, um, so, you know, on a daily basis, I see patients, which I've done, you know, throughout the five or six, five and a half years that I've lived there. Um, during that time, I've been the only certified medical oncologist in the country, which has 18 million people. So I see patients, but, you know, I also help lead our group's involvement in regional and international sort of research collaborations to try to generate data that will, you know, inform policies to help with cancer control throughout the region. And that includes providing mentorship to a really remarkable group of young Malawian clinicians and scientists, as well as UNC clinical fellows, PhD students, you know, many of whom have global cancer as a career interest and spend time with us in our program, developing, you know, right, doing their PhD work or developing their own studies in their own areas of interest. It sounds like this project entails a lot of research, but also working with patients and training doctors in Malawi. How do you juggle all that? How do you balance doing research and making a direct impact on people's lives at the same time? It truly is a care, research, and training organization, and probably one of the shining examples of what kind of a successful academic global health program in a low-income country can look like. I mean, it's it's really probably one of the you know largest and most remarkable global health footprints of any university in the U.S., certainly any public university. And, and we really do all three. I mean, over 30, you know, the, again, nearly 30 years now, you know, we've trained a huge cohort of Malawian doctors and researchers who are, you know, many of whom are still working in our program or have kind of senior leading roles in other Malawi institutions like the Ministry of Health or, or other programs. You know, we have both American expatriate specialists like myself, but more importantly, a large contingent of Malawian doctors and nurses and laboratory technicians and pharmacists who contribute a huge um, amount to care in, in the Malawi public sector at Kamuzu Central Hospital, which is the main public sector hospital in the capital, a long way where we work. And then research-wise, you know, I think the output from, from the program has been remarkable, including you know, some of the really seminal studies focused on HIV treatment and prevention that have, or, you know, the malaria vaccine that have really changed kind of worldwide policy. Um, and so I think we're beginning to, you know, cancer is a relatively newer area for us, but that's, you know, that's, a, that's certainly been an area where we've had dramatic expansion and, and, a, and a lot of, you know, kind of success over the, just the last few years, but really building on the um, HIV and infectious disease program as the backbone. When it comes to cancer research and cancer treatment, how far behind is Malawi? Yeah, I mean, relative to the U.S., they're very far behind, you know, like 50 years or 40 years. So, you know, I think these are in general very, again, very beautiful, but objectively among the poorest countries of the world, you know. So like the Malawi, I mean, most people in Malawi, their annual health 
healthcare expenditure per capita is less than $50 per year per person, whereas in the US, it's more like nine to $10,000 per person per year. So there's just huge disparities in the amount of resources that are available. Even for HIV, you know, there've been huge successes in HIV, but that's still overwhelmingly financed by external donors. So yeah, I, I think where we are with cancer at the moment is really, um, is sort of like the early days of the HIV epidemic in this part of the world where, you know, in the beginning, people first, you just had to recognize the scale of the problem that, you know, patients in the U.S. are living long lives on on effective HIV treatment, but you know, there are countries in sub-Saharan Africa where 20, 30% of the population is infected and they have no access to treatment. So that, that was a conversation like in 2000 in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and then when, when, so A is first to kind of identify the scale of the problem, the, the burden. And then secondly, what, what is possible to do about it? And again, for HIV in 2000, the conversation was, we don't know if we can give HIV treatment to people in Africa. So, you know, are they able to take medicines at the right time of day? Can we do it without sophisticated laboratory monitoring? If we don't do it correctly, will we just get viral resistance and then we'll make a, pro- a bad problem worse? And to some extent, you know, that was the place where the academic community stepped in and sort of did small pilot demonstrations to sort of show that, you know, patients could take antiretroviral treatment reliably, that the outcomes were essentially the same as in the U.S. And then that becomes evidence that can then, you can leverage with U.S. aid and, you know, development partners and the World Health Organization. And then all of those multilateral groups then are willing to make the kinds of investments that are needed to sort of scale up treatment. That's where we are with cancer. We're at like a 2000 with can- for HIV. That's where we are with cancer now, where people are just now recognizing how much of it there is in this part of the world. I mean, there's still many policymakers out there who think there's no cancer. You know, poor people in poor countries don't get cancer. That's a disease of rich people in rich countries. Or, you know, it's hopeless if you get cancer in this part of the world. So we have other priorities and there's no reason to even try to do anything about it. That's really where the conversation surprisingly is often. And so I think our, you know, a lot of what our program has focused on is, you know, trying to measure how much cancer there is and what types of cancer there is and what the causes of those cancers are, you know, which ones can be prevented, you know, what is an effective control strategy for Malawi that's resource appropriate, you know, when patients get cancer, can they be treated in resource appropriate ways and do reasonably well? I mean, those are really the questions that we're focused on. And just like with the HIV story, I think our hope is that we can generate some of the, you know, kind of key and compelling preliminary pilot data that then, you know, informs a larger regional conversation that other, you know, again, the USAID and BIFID and the, uh, you know, WHO kind of respond to and, and make the appropriate commitments to control disease in a way that is appropriate, you know, for the region, because I think Malawi is not and should not look exactly like it does in the U.S. Do you think with work like you're doing with UNC Project Malawi that Carolina can place itself as an international leader in cancer research? So the short answer is yes, and I, I think I think we have already become that. I think, truthfully, we are, you know, uh, among the most, if not the most, kind of successful cancer research program in a low-income country, possibly in the world. And, you know, I think that's reflected in 
sort of scientific productivity and you know funding over the last few years, I think the trajectory of the program has been really good. Um, you know, as you know, um, perhaps a director of the National Cancer Institute uh, is Ned Sharpless, who I actually met with yesterday. Um, and I think, you know, in his new role and as a former UNC alum and, you know, my boss as the director of the Cancer Center, I think he has a, you know, I think he has been to Malawi and appreciates how important and sort of catalytic the investments of NIH have been in Malawi and how, you know, how transformative those investments have been in, you know, in really coalescing kind of a, some national momentum for cancer control really for the first time in history. And, you know, all of that has been facilitated by UNC Project and all of that has resulted from, you know, ideas and grants that we have outcompeted other, you know, other groups with. And so I, I do think that, again, I, I think our cancer program in Malawi is really on a trajectory to do very similar things to what our HIV program has done. In addition to like the amazing sort of in-country benefits, I think it has been a regional and international leader in generating HIV science that has, again, you know, transformed worldwide policy. And I, I think we're very much on that same trajectory for cancer in Malawi. So pretty soon you'll be coming back to Chapel Hill from Malawi, and you're going to be the speaker at this year's winter commencement. As I mentioned earlier, you're a two-time Carolina graduate. Did you ever think that you'd be back here giving a commencement speech? No, I mean the short answer is the short answer is obviously no. I it's it honestly never occurred to me. You know, I I mean I I think I thought about being on television or you know there are other things that you think about, but I, it never until Chancellor Folt asked me. It just never occurred to me that this is something that I might do one day. Um, and obviously, it's it's an unbelievable honor, and I, and I think hopefully, you know, having been there as an undergraduate and now getting a chance to speak will, you know, that that will have. I hope that that will have some resonance for, you know, for people graduating now, because I, I am, and I think it's been as I've started to kind of think about, you know, what the occasion means and and what you know I might have to say that would be of interest to um, people. I mean, a lot of it is sort of thinking about trying to talk to a 21-year-old version of myself, you know, now 20 years later. And um, I mean, I've, I've sort of realized that kind of the day I was born and the day I graduated and then the day that I'll be speaking to the graduates pretty much divide my life into two very almost entirely symmetrical halves. And that's, yeah, that's something I, I would have never anticipated and um, is something I'm really excited about. And I, I hope that, again, because I was sort of sitting where they were sitting 20 years ago, that at least that part of the story or what I had to say, I'm, I hope will have some resonance and meaning for people who are listening. So if you could go back and give 21-year-old Satish some advice at his commencement, what would that be? You know, I think a lot of it is about sort of a appreciating the moment. I don't think I really appreciated the moment at the time, sort of how much I had accomplished even in that moment, you know, and, and also what a foundation that was for everything that would come afterwards. I think these are easy to kind of appreciate in retrospect, but it's so much harder to sort of be cognizant of that moving forward. I mean, I think and I don't know if this is really advice more than just reflection. I mean, I think the university and North Carolina and, and my, you know, the 
family that I have there and the community that I have at UNC has really provided this like amazing kind of harbor, you know, that I've always felt connected to, even while kind of living halfway around the world doing, you know, work that I would have never really imagined. So I think just, you know, kind of appreciating what you've accomplished and, you know, the amazing kind of community that you now belong to and how that is so freeing in so many ways to just, you know, pursue these kind of outrageous ideas that you might have. What allows you to be daring is to have that, is to have a safety net. And I think, you know, the, the university and the community there it just provides, you know, a remarkable, for me at least, has provided just a really remarkable tether over, you know, again, the subsequent 20 years of my life where I've moved kind of all over the world and, and, and done crazy things. But I think what has enabled that to a large extent has always been, you know, has been having that connection to UNC, having that connection to North Carolina you know, being able to bounce crazy ideas off people there whose, you know, whose advice and mentorship I really value. So yeah, I, I guess that doesn't, it doesn't really sound like advice because advice is supposed to be pithy, um, which what I just said was not. But, um, you know, I think it probably boils down to just appreciating, you know, the moment and what you've accomplished as much as you can, just trying to appreciate how much that has prepared you for all of the things that you can't even anticipate yet. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We'll be taking the winter break over the next couple weeks, but check back to unc.edu for another episode of Well Said, January 18th.